Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 209 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How are you? I'm great. I'm doing fantastic. Uh, good good times going right now, at least for the past couple of weeks, past couple of months for investors and market participants. So I think uh, everybody should be having a relatively uh, decent summer, uh, at least <laughs> compared to, to last year. You know, there was so much crying about sell in May and go away, right? And uh, so far, that's not working out. And this market is climbing your prototypical wall of worry. And um, May was great. May was great. Um, yeah. It was and awesome. So I, I, I am... I still think we're in the disbelief phase. I know it sounds a little nuts for me to say, but I still think we're in the disbelief phase. A lot of cash out there still. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, Before we begin, as always, just wanted to take the first few minutes to recap the performance uh, for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on July 12th, and this data is from Ycharts. S&P 500 index up a half a percent for the month of July and up 16 and a half percent for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 0.2 percent for the month and up 3.6 percent for the year. The Nasdaq Composite Index up 1 percent for the month and up 33 percent for the year. The Russell 2000 Small Cap Index up 2.5 percent for the month and up 10 percent for the year. And the Vanguard uh, All World X United States ETF up 1.4% for the month and up 10.1% for the year. Three month Treasury rate at 5.47%, two year Treasury rate at 4.72%, and the 10 year Treasury rate at 3.86%. And one thing that I want to just point out here, Matt, really quick, because I don't think we've talked about it that much this year, is that when people are listening to us give these performance numbers. We are quoting performance numbers from indexes that are 100% stock. This is not a CYA for us. This is a not CYA for other advisors. Um, but I would say, again, I don't have any data to back this up, Matt, but you can give me your opinion. More than 55, 60% of people that use an advisor are not 100% stock. Would you say that's fair? I would say it's absolutely fair. I might be underquoting that a little bit. But no, I think that's a very accurate. And I think um, I know where you're going with this, but please continue with your thought process. And I think when people see, hey, the S&P 500 is up 16.5% year to date, then they look at their portfolio and their portfolio is only up eight or it's only up 10 or only up five. And it's like comparing apples to oranges when someone has a 60% equity position and they're comparing to an index that has a 100% equity position or they have a 30% equity position or even a, a 70 or 80% position and the other 20% is bonds. That makes a a pretty big difference, right? So 
Um, I just wanted to throw that out there again. This is not a, a CYA for your advisor, um, but you know when you are trying to benchmark returns, you should be doing so against a like-to-like -like, uh, risk benchmark. Well said, Mark. And again, you know, look at that return year to date for the NASDAQ at 33% and look at the Dow Jones at 3.6%. You know, what uh, a the lot NASDAQ of NASDAQ was also down 30 last year. <laughs> that's right. And what was the best performing equity index on this list last year? The Dow. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, a lot of advisors uh, strictly adhere to modern portfolio theory. So you're going to have exposure to that value index like the Dow that's only up 36 but I think you make a very excellent point. You can't be benchmarking a non-100% stock portfolio uh, to one that an index that is, and and think that you know you're underperforming because that's not a relative comparison. Yep. Well said. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. Uh, first thing I had, Matt, which I found pretty interesting, was a tweet thread from an account called Unusual Whales. Uh, I like following this account, by the way. It's a good it, one. It's great. Uh, which was on uh, July 4th, and this was regarding congressmen and women trading individual stocks. So, you know, obviously with Congress trading individual stocks, this has been in the news uh pretty heavily over the past several months. And this Unusual Whales account has a website that tracks, obviously, unusual uh, large trades in the market and, and reports on it. Um, so Jenna will throw this up for everybody to see. It's quite a funny uh, picture and tweet. Um, it has uh, the Wolf of Wall Street's cover of uh, you know Martin Scorsese's film, uh, but it, instead of Leonardo DiCaprio, DiCaprio. Face, it's Nancy Pelosi, which is quite funny. And again, this is not saying Democrats are worse than Republicans or Republicans are worse than Democrats when it comes to trading because they give examples of both. So, oh, yeah, I've seen I've seen this list either, in the past at different times. They're both, you know, equal uh, offenders on this topic. So he said last year, Congress continued to trade without any fear of conflicts. For example, in 2022, there were many unusually timed trades. When someone asks you about unusual political trading or conflicts of interest last year, show them this thread. And I just picked out a couple, again, both Democrats and Republicans, so don't get your panties in a bunch. Um, so the first one was on February 22nd, 2022, House Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene bought Lockheed Martin, Chevron, and NextTerra Energy. The next day, uh, Representative Greene said that war and rumors of war is incredibly profitable and convenient. Ukraine was invaded two days later. So is it chance? Uh, maybe you can think so. I don't know. I doubt it. Uh, second, numerous other politicians purchased oil and war stocks before the invasion of Ukraine. Many were on committees privy to info regarding the invasion, including defense and energy. The positions they took have beat the market since November. Um, and this one just kind of lists the top stocks purchased by Congress with the largest gains since Russia's invasion. And, you know, you have stocks that are up, you know, over 50 percent, over 30 percent, over 20 percent. Uh, and you can see that here uh, either in the show notes or on the YouTube page uh, that Jenna's throwing up right now. But pretty eye opening. Um, next one that I have, I have uh, just three more here, Matt. OK, 
um, was Senator Thomas Carper bought up to $200,000 in bearish ETFs before the huge rate hikes and CPI data from the Federal Reserve. He sits on the Senate Finance Committee. As a politician, he is actively shorting the U.S. economy and was up on his positions. That's wild. That is mind-boggling to me that uh, i wish people like our our traditional uh, senator podcast listeners could see my face there i was like oh man who is betting against the u.s economy Mm. Mm. a senator that's crazy sitting on the senate finance committee interesting okay Moving on, members of Congress were heavily invested into semiconductor stocks before the chips bill and restrictions in China. In fact, because of the heavy involvement in semis, members have had incredible gains so far in 2023. Below is a chart from our semi report in August of 2022, and it just lists uh, a bunch of uh, congressmen and women that have heavy exposure to semiconductor stocks. This one really got me Matt. this last one save the best for last jenna's gonna throw this up for people to look at it highly encourage it I would in, 20, in 2022 congress outperformed the market shocker both democrats and republicans outperform the market and currently democrats are outpacing the s p 500 due to their heavy weighting in tech you can read the full report here what this shows for people that are just listening, the S&P 500, uh, notated by the ETF SPY, uh, which just tracks the S&P 500, was down 18.2% in 2022. Correct. The average Republican was up 0.38% in 2022. And the average Democrat was only down 1.76% in 2022. So I'm sure if you go back and go year by year by year that this is just not a coincidence. I'm sure you're going to see the data, which I'd be very interested in seeing, that this is a consistent theme, a consistent theme and or a consistent problem that has happened since Congress has had insider information to things that the public is not aware of. And they're legally able to do it. And they're legally able to do it. So again, I am not advocating for or against the current rules that are in place for trading in Congress. I'm just pointing out that a lot of Congress people have better trading records than some of the smartest investors that we all love and know today, Matt, and just Saying it for what it's worth just smells a little fishy to me. It is. I mean, it, it totally is. And, <laughs> you know, at some point it's got to change. But, um, you know, when you vote your own pay, it's it's highly doubtful that they're going to do this. I mean, these people are going into office not worth much and they're coming out worth worth nine figures. It's just insane. Yeah, and I think a, a, a congressman actually, I can't remember who it was, but they actually like were caught on a mic saying, you know, we only make, you know, X amount of dollars per year. You know, how else are we supposed to make our money <laughs> other than <laughs> in, inside trading, you know, stocks that they're privy to? It's just wild. So 
Oh, um, anyways, do with that what you want. I just thought it was interesting that uh, I love you brought it up. It's nice because a lot of our listeners might not be aware of this. You and I are privy to this. You know, we see this stuff all the time, but a lot of our listeners might not, Mark. So I think it's good you, you bring it up. Next thing I have is a quote from Warren Buffett. Uh, and old Warren said, at all times, in all markets, in all parts of the world, the tiniest change in rates changes the value of every financial asset. And I thought this well was said. a good time to bring this up with, you know, the rapid rise in interest rates that we've all experienced over the past two years. I think a lot of people sometimes don't really understand what the high interest rates have to and to assets around the world, such as stocks, bonds, and real estate. Um, so I just wanted to kind of break this down for people. So, you know, just like Warren said, a small change in interest rates can have a really big impact on the value of most financial assets. And, you know, the specific effect is going to depend on the type of asset we're talking about in the direction of interest rates. Um, so I just kind of wanted to go over the major asset classes and how interest rates affect those. So number right. one, if we're talking about bonds, um, you know, when interest rates rise, newly issued bonds offer high, higher yields, right? So making existing bonds with lower yields of bonds fall. And as a result, the value of existing bonds decreases. And conversely, on the other side of it, when interest rates fall, existing bonds with higher yields become more attractive, leading to an increase in their value. So we've talked several times before about how that uh, interest rate bond price has an inverse relationship. Interest rates up, bond prices down, and vice versa. Um, so you know, interest rates have a massive, massive effect on, on bond prices. Um, so when we talk about stocks, when we talk about stocks, Matt, we have to talk about, you know, what we call the, the discount rate. And this is interest rates, um, you know, affecting the discount rate used to value future cash flows of companies. Okay. Yep. So when interest rates rise, the discount rate increases which reduces the present value of future earnings and cash flows, okay? Um, and because of that, stock prices may decline, or according to Economics 101, stock prices should decline, right? Um, and again, on the flip side of that, when interest rates fall, the discount rate decreases, which increases the present value of future earnings and potentially boosting stock prices, right? Um, so if people want to get more on the discount rate, uh, just Google it. There's a ton of information on, on the web about it, but it's used to pretty much value future cash flows of publicly traded companies, right? It's a way to, yep. to, to put a, a dollar value on, on how much it's worth. Um, and then also with stocks, Matt, is, is opportunity cost, right? So higher interest rates can make fixed income investments more attractive compared to stocks, which leads investors to shift their money away from stocks and into bonds or other fixed income assets or other assets such as real estate. Um, and this decreased demand for stocks can put downward pressure on stock prices, right? And then again, lower interest rates may might make stocks more appealing, which can drive up stock prices. And we've seen that time and time again. 
Um, last but not least, real estate. So obviously the big one is mortgage rates. When interest rates rise, mortgage rates increase, which makes home ownership more expensive, uh, which in turn reduces demand for real estate, leading to a potential decline in proper, property values and, and vice versa with that. Um, and then the only other thing that I wanted to mention when it comes to real estate is investment properties. So when rates rise, the cost of financing investment properties increases because you're borrowing money at a higher rate today than you were three years ago. So investment properties aren't as lucrative as they were, right? Um, and I think pe people saw that just recently, like three, four years ago, even five years ago, it's like, okay, everyone wanted to be a realtor. Everyone wanted to own property to rent out, right? And we've seen a pretty good decline in that just because the cost of money has gone up, right? That's right. Um, so interest rates really, really do have a massive effect on the world economy, not just here in the US. Um, so uh, a lot of it does depend on interest rate policy and a lot of the news coverage is surrounding these Fed rate hikes every single month, right? Or these Fed rate meet or these Fed meetings every single month um, because so much hinges on the decision that, that the Fed makes. I This is a great summary for our listeners and viewers. You know, another thing that kind of makes me think about is just kind of the, the state of Wall Street today in regards to leverage, leverage at the corporation level. And I think boardrooms around the nation learned a valuable lesson after the great financial crisis that they could not rely on the public markets for funding um, and what they a lot of companies have done since the great financial crisis is they've lowered their leverage. They don't have the same amount of debt and they are not as leveraged as much as they were 15 years ago. And I think when you start to see these interest rate cycles go up, normally people would start looking around and saying, OK, which companies are more leveraged? Because as that cost of capital goes up, their earnings are conversely going to go down because they got to pay that interest. And I think what you're seeing now is on average, not every company's like this, Mark, but a lot of companies don't have the debt levels like they used to, and they have a lot of cash in the balance sheet, and they're trying to control their own destiny. And that's another thing I think investors need to be cognizant of as rates go up. There are some companies out there that are going to get, you know, really stifled because of the interest that they got to service. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, lastly, just really quick, Matt. I had a tweet from Todd Sohn on June 29th uh, relating to small caps. So we'll put this chart up for people on the YouTube channel. He says, what could go right for small caps? Breaking a 17-month losing streak of consecutive negative one-year price returns is a start. So that just happened. He posts a chart of the Russell 2000. It's a monthly chart. He posts uh, the times that we break this negative one-year price return. And it shows that that happens pretty close to market bottoms uh, going back till the 1980s, I think. Yeah, looks like it. Um, and I think, you know, times before that we've seen this happen, you know, the Russell 2000 small cap index, you know, was up 65% a year later, 14% a year later, 13, 31, 12, 15, 25, 24, 13. So higher than average returns over the next year, right? Yep. Um, so just something for people to be aware of. I know small caps haven't been the best place to be year to date. It's been all about the mega, mega large caps so far, but 
again, uh, would not be surprised if we saw a little bit of rotation into smaller, more risk on areas of the market. And I think uh, the first thing you have uh, might detail just just that. Well said. So here's what I got next for our viewers and listeners. It's about the American dollar, Mark. There have been a lot of talk about this, has there? So I want to shed some light on this. During the pandemic, the American dollar was a safe haven. And you really saw the dollar gain in value against foreign currencies. So I saw a post by our friend J.C. Peretz from All Star Charts, and he posted this mark on July 11th. And Jenna will put up this chart for our YouTube viewers. This will, of course, be in our uh, traditional show notes and all of our social media for our traditional podcast listeners. And this is what J.C. said. He said, quote, if you're looking for what could potentially take stocks much higher in the second half of 2023, how about the U.S. dollar completely falling apart? Question mark. And what he does is he shows the U.S. dollar index, the DXY, and it looks like it goes back roughly about, what, two, two and a half years. And it's starting to kind of show this massive rise in the dollar, and it's starting to show it uh, selling off. It's consolidating, and he's suggesting from a technical standpoint that you could have a breakdown in the dollar. Now, I wanted to bring this front and center Will you just kind of take a moment uh, from your position as our chief investment officer at our firm and just kind of talk about how a weakening dollar tends to kind of boost foreign earnings and these multinationals and all that type of stuff? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, just in a nutshell. So, I mean, I you know, we could spend hours on this and go into detail. But when we have a weaker dollar, it it makes earnings or the value of revenue that companies are generating overseas more valuable, essentially, right? Um, so when we have a, a falling dollar, we would expect multinational companies to outperform. We would expect international to outperform purely domestic U.S. stocks. That's a whole other conversation that we can get into. But um, this is good for the global stock market, I would say, Matt. And this doesn't necessarily mean that U.S. stocks are going to suck just because the dollar is falling. But we've been in such a strong dollar environment for the past decade and a half where international stocks have been creamed relative to U.S. stocks. So a lot of people are projecting that this is the start of international outperformance or the start of companies that have exposure internationally or generate revenues from overseas are going to start to do really well if this dollar breaks below 101 or 100. Um, and just in general, it doesn't happen all the time, but I would say the majority of the time, a weaker dollar is better for stocks. And especially this has been true since you know mid-2021 to early 2022 and definitely throughout all of 2022 when stocks were up the dollar was down and when the dollar was up stocks were down and obviously as you can see in this chart mat in 2022 the dollar was pretty dang strong so what do you think happened to stocks had it they were down since the gfc um, they were down so i think if we break below this you know 101 100 level on the, on the dollar index Watch out above for, for stocks globally. Yeah, I, I think it's it's something that uh, is not front and center on a lot of people's radar screens right now. 
And yet again, the Independent Advisors podcast is being, to a certain extent, uh, informing you that this is something that I would be paying attention to as an investor right now. Fair enough to say? Yeah. All right. The next thing is something that I feel our viewers and listeners should keep an eye on, Mark. And this has to do with consumer spending in the second half of the year. So first of all, you had the announcement in the podcast recently about student loan repayments uh, having to restart here in the second half of the year. Well, I saw this tweet uh, from Adam, and his last name is Tumerkin. And he had this post, and it was on, let me get the exact date, July 7th, Mark. And he says, quote, big miss today on consumer credit. U.S. consumer credit uh, came in at $7.24 billion, expected was $20 billion. Bank credit growth has plunged, and now consumer loan demand is eroding. They're also repaying debt faster than new debt, shrinking the money supply. And he said, quote, don't expect growth if this persists. And what he does is he shows from the um, regional uh, Fed bank, the FRED data, he shows the bank credit all commercial banks, and it shows obviously a drastic uh, downward movement in bank credit from a year ago. And I just want to kind of point this out that, you know, this market right now is climbing a wall of worry. And I think in the second half of the year, there's going to be a lot of focus on the American consumer. And I think it's definitely something that will be noteworthy, especially as these student loan repayments start coming back. I'll be very curious, Mark, to see how the holiday spending period goes this year. And so I just want to kind of throw it out there that, you know, banks have really kind of tightened up their lending standards. Let's put it that way. And, you know, that could have a negative effect on the economy. To what degree, I don't know. Uh, but it is something I want to throw out there. Your comments, sir. Yeah, it goes back to what I think I was just talking about a little bit earlier with the effect interest rates have on everything uh, that we have as an economy. And this is another one where the higher the interest rates, uh, the less people are going to take money out, right? And when that happens, the economy tends to shrink. And when the economy tends to shrink and it's not growing as fast, banks tend to tighten up lending standards, right? Because they don't want to get burned uh, by something kind of similar to what happened in 2008, right? So uh, their lending standards go up. You combine that with not a lot of people taking money to lend from them, and it's kind of a perfect storm of a slowing economy, right? So this isn't anything that's surprising. I would argue that a good chunk of this is priced into the market already, um, but I don't think this is a trend that's going away anytime soon until you know the Fed starts lowering rates or pauses. I love all your feedback. I agree with everything you said, Mark. And I'm going to give kind of the counter side to this uh, for people who are worried about this headline. I subscribe to the theory that as long as the average American feels comfortable about his or her job, they're going to continue their lifestyle and continue to spend. And even if we have an economic slowdown that's more dramatic than people are expecting in the second half of the year, I still don't think it's going to be accompanied by a massive amount of layoffs. And so um, it's something we need to watch but I'm not overly concerned about it, but it is something that we should be watching. Okay. Yeah. And that's one thing like, you know, when, when this all started or not all started, but in 2022, everyone was like, layoffs are coming. The layoffs are coming. The layoffs are coming. Oh, they were saying and, in a big way, Mark. Yeah. And I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but 
you know, it's almost we're talking, like they were talking massive layoffs, not just light. They were talking massive. Right. And, you know, it almost like is like a game of telephone. Right. So, you know, you tell someone something on the phone, then they call someone and tell somebody and then that that person calls someone and, and tells somebody and like this just gets perpetuated. And then there's just a little juice or a little exaggeration that gets added to all of those those calls right and by the time you're talking about it at the dinner table or at thanksgiving with your family everyone's like oh my god there's going to be the craziest amount of job loss that we've seen since the great financial crisis and blah 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 and here we are today with the fed still raising rates in my opinion because of how strong the job market is well said well said right crazy yeah it also makes me think uh, when people like you and me go to holiday dinners, Mark, don't we just take our fair share of pop shots on the uh, on the markets and the economy? We do. And, and you know, everyone wants to the, the, the biggest question is, number one, is the market going to go up or is it going to go down? And number two is what's your favorite stock right now? And How I always often do you get that question? A lot. And I refrain from that conversation now. When I was younger, I used to love to get into that with people. But now you can't win because if you give them a stock and it does really well, it becomes their idea. If you give them a stock and it does really poorly, then you're on the hook for it. So it's just a lose-lose situation. So it's like, I'm like, I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, this last one might get you going. We'll see. And uh, Jenna, we'll see what she says about this. So interesting question. This is from Michael Antonelli, and this is from July 7th. You ready? So the bear market lasted, what, 283 days, January 3rd to October 13th, 2022. Since then, Mark, as of July 7th, sir, 267 days have passed. Has a bear market bounce ever lasted longer? than the actual bear market. That's good. You know, good at, what, at what point are the perma bears going to have to acknowledge that we're in a new bull market? Yeah, it's just, you know, you're never going to change a person who's been bearish for the past decade. They're going to, you know, they're going to continue to to be bearish. And, you know, it's the same thing with like the definition of a bear market and a bull market. In my opinion, it's the same thinking thing with like a bear market bounce, right? In a bear market bounce, you would see not a lot of stocks participating. You'd see really high volatility. Um, you would see uh, not consistent leadership in the market. Those are three things that you would see in a bear market bounce. Those are three of the opposite things that we've seen so far to start this year. Leadership has broadened out. Yes, tech has done really well. They've done the best so far, but we're starting to see rotation. Breath is improving. Aggressive sectors are leading. So even if we did, over the next one or two years, fall back to the lows of 2022, in my opinion, this still isn't a bear market bounce. This is a broad-based rally that has a potential to go for a lot longer than people think. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me with tech because it's the largest component of the S&P from an index standpoint, and it was one of the worst performing sectors last year. And then on top of it, you know, you talk a lot behind the scenes about market breadth, and you're starting to see a lot more broad participation. 
And, you know, earlier in the podcast, and this is, you know, why listeners should listen to for the entire podcast, you talked about small caps. That small cap index is roughly a fourth financials. You know, what happens after March and the banking crisis and everyone sold off these small cap banking stocks? I'm not advocating for or against them, but I'm asking this question. What happens when these banking stocks report earnings over the next couple of quarters? And let's assume for a second they're not as bad as the market's anticipating. What do you think that does for the Russell 2000 index? And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of those things that are hanging out there that aren't getting the attention that they deserve, but people are just fixated on the top seven or eight market cap stocks right now. And that's shouldn't be the case. Yeah. I mean, I could, I would argue that if, you know, regional banks or smaller banks have a really good earnings season, that this could be one of the best quarters ever return wise for the Russell 2000 index because the Russell, the small cap index is made up really heavily of financials, obviously, but then also industrials and industrials have been great for the past couple of months. And actually uh, XLI, the large cap industrial index just hit all time highs not that long ago. So if you get financials to kick it into gear, oof. I well wouldn't said. be surprised. I would not be surprised to see the Russell 2000 index catch up or close that gap to the Nasdaq before the end of the year. Well said, my friend. Well said. I'll turn it back over to you for the financial planning topic of the week. Yeah, so it'll be a quick one. I know we're running a little bit long in the tooth here, uh, but this was a blog post from Ruben Miller titled How Returns Happen. And he talks about kind of getting addicted to cash, Matt, that we touched on a little mm. earlier. So mm. okay, this should he, be says, he says back on March 20th of 2020, admit, amidst the COVID-19 chaos, Ben Carlson advised his readers just make sure you don't become addicted to your dry powder. Ooh. Don't avoid market timing because it can't work. Avoid it because if it doesn't work, the results are unnecessarily catastrophic. Hmm. When and how will you justify to yourself to get back in? Why would you willingly sign up for an agonizing investment experience? March 9th, 2009 is the day we bottomed out during the great financial crisis and never looked back. The day that clowned anyone who said, well, I'm just going to step to the sidelines for a little while. After the market goes down more, I'll get back in. Just wait this out for a bit. S&P 500 is up 765% since then. Prices hmm. are unsympathetic unsymp to investors putzing around on the sidelines. Consider some of the historical one-day returns of the S&P 500. March mm. 5th of 1933, up 16.5% in one day. October 13th of 2008, up 11.5% in one day. March 24th of 2020, up 9.4% in one day. Um, so just a friendly reminder to everybody that I know cash feels comfortable. Cash feels king for a lot of people. Um, but in the long run, we got to put that money to work. That's right. What's the silent killer, Mark? Inflation, baby. Inflation. Yep. Well, with that, Matt, uh, anything else before we end it here for the week? No, sir. Earning season's on the horizon. Expect some uh, volatility tomorrow. coming up. I did see a note from Goldman. Uh, the Goldman Sachs trade desk is saying that the implied volatility on the average S&P 500 stock going into earnings season is the lowest they've seen in so many years. 
And I think that just goes to show you that the intraday volatility we are seeing right now in the market, especially the last several months, it feels like a breath of fresh air compared to what we've been experiencing in the last 12 to 18 months. Yeah, so, it's actually um, fun to see, you know, the market up, you know, 0.1% or 0.2% or just down 0.1 or 0.2% rather than, you know, the massive swings and we that we've had. Uh, you know, obviously we all love massive updates, right? But it's yep. kind of just a breath of fresh air to, you know, kind of see the market do its thing for a little bit. Wow. Last comment based upon your financial planning topic of the week. Words of wisdom from Matt Jessup. It is time in the market, not timing the market. All right, everybody. Well, we will leave it there. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to episode number 209 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week and enjoy the weekend. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.